0: Heavenly Father, descend upon us with power. We've acknowledged your presence. We pray that you will have free reign in our hearts. Encourage us by your holy word. Teach us. Rebuke where needed. Comfort us. Instruct us in the way that we should go. And may our hearts be lifted up by the hope that is revealed to us In the gospel message, the person of Jesus Christ. Open our eyes that we might see him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we've actually come to the end of our summer series, and it's horrible to think that we've come to the end of summer. Next Sunday, Pastor Keith is actually going to do one more sermon in this series, but this will be my last opportunity Uh, To kind of wrap things up as we've looked at the heroes of the faith from Hebrews chapter 11. Let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. And if you need a pew Bible, it's on page 1191. But I want you to open up the scriptures as we have the opportunity to summarize this series that deals with the great heroes of faith. And we look at the end of the chapter, verse 39. So Hebrews eleven thirty-nine. 39. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. The word commended here is actually taken from the Greek word martyr. And in the Greek, it sounds a lot like the English word martyr, maturas. It's the idea of a witness, but a witness that is extremely positive, that is well spoken of. It is the formal recognition of achievement when someone commends you. The fireman was commended for his many deeds of bravery by going into the burning building. We commend someone when we give witness to their bravery, their courage, their kindness, whatever it might have been. And it's important for us to commend people on a regular basis. We are extolling them, lauding them, honoring them, giving them acclaim, recognizing what they have done as, as being rather significant and important and vital. And so as we look at this chapter in Hebrews 11, noted, I noted that that word commended is mentioned about four different times. These were commended for their faith. This is what the ancients were commended for, coming down to the end of the chapter, they were all commended for their faith. What would someone commend you for? What is noteworthy in your life, significant, obvious? If someone were to eulogize you, what would they say from a positive perspective? Wouldn't it be great if they said that person, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl, They were people of faith. They had their problems and they weren't perfect, but let's commend them for their faith. And I want to ask a couple questions this morning as we summarize this series and seek to answer them from the scripture. And the first one is simply this. What made their faith so commendable? And I see several important features. I'm sure this is not exhaustive, but number one is the fact that they believe the unseen they grabbed on to something that isn't visible. Go back to verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, and it's being certain of something you cannot see. This is what the ancients were commended for, believing in something that isn't visible to everyone. That's why in verse 6 it says, it's impossible to please God without faith. The very first part of faith is believing that he is, even though you cannot see him. We see the evidence for God all around us, but we cannot see God himself. But faith gives a confidence. We're sure, and our hope is certain, even though we cannot see all that is around us. The second thing about their faith that I think is so commendable is that it was active. Right? I mean, that's the the gist of the chapter, the great deeds done. In the book of Daniel, it says, those who know God shall do great exploits. They're infused with a motivation that others don't have. They are blessed with power and energy to do what others do not do. And so we look at verse four, by faith Abel offered Verse five, by faith Enoch pleased God. By faith Noah built an ark, verse seven. By faith Abraham obeyed, verse eight. And on and on you go. By faith they did amazing things. Let me remind you that the Bible says faith without works is dead. What is it? Faith without works is? One more time, faith without works is? You say, Pastor, why'd you do it three times? Well, because James chapter two does it three times. Three times, faith without works is dead. Why do you repeat something so often in the space of a few verses? It's because it's so easily forgotten. And we have a tendency to think that faith without works is okay. So the author in the book of James says, you show me your faith by what you say you believe. I'll show you my faith by what I do. I'll show you how my faith performs. And while we cannot judge one another as to whether our faith is real, real faith is demonstrative. And that's what this chapter tells us. Let me add to this that commendable faith is rational. You say, where do you get that? Well, look at verse 19. We read in verse 17, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered up Isaac as a sacrifice. And verse 19, and now now Isaac was the promised child. Everything was dependent upon him. The son of promise who would bring to Abraham a great nation and now God said, kill him. But verse 19 says, Abraham reasoned that God could raise him from the dead. It's a very interesting Greek word, logizomai, where we get the English word logic. And it shows that faith is not independent of sound thinking. In fact, true faith is dependent upon great facts like God is, and God knows everything, and God never lies, and God has all power, and all of his promises are true, and faith reasons. If God tells me to do something, there must be a good reason to do it. Do you have that kind of logic? Is your faith rational? Those who aren't people of faith are quick to say that faith is but a dream. We believe they're the dreamers. They're the ones living in a mythical world. We're believers in reality. And faith is reasonable. But finally, this faith that they were commended for, get this, is incomplete. That is, it is not totally finished. It's not complete in them, and they've not experienced all that has been promised. The best faith, commendable faith, is not faith that has arrived, nor a faith that has all the answers, nor a faith that experiences wonderful prosperity all of the time. This chapter kills that theology of health and wealth that is so prevalent today that if you follow God, God, everything will be rosy. May that theology die a quick death because it is not true. Say, how do you know? The word of God tells us that commendable faith always doesn't end in a positive way. Now notice in this chapter, we've been talking about a lot of heroes, but we're also talking about heartbreaks. Did you notice that? Look at verse 32, we'll start there. After mentioning some of the favorite heroes of the faith and going chronologically through the book of Genesis and Exodus, He comes to the book of Judges and doesn't really have time to divide up uh, or doesn't have time to explain. So he says in verse 32, and what more can I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. All of those were Judges. David was a king. Samuel, a prophet and a priest and the prophets. And these guys, through faith, conquered kingdoms, and administered justice. That probably refers to the judges, David as well. And notice the middle of verse 33, and they gained what was promised. Look at that. They gained what was promised. They shut the mouths of lions. That might be Samson, as we noticed last week, certainly Daniel. They quenched the fury of the flames like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They escaped the edge of the sword. Many of them had done that. Uh, Gideon did, David did. Through weakness, they were turned strong, as Samson did in his last act of faith and bravery. They became powerful in battle. They routed foreign armies. That's the history of the judges and David as well. These are heroes who accomplish amazing things. But look at verse five. In the middle of the verse, others. I would like to call these the nameless others. This is still under the category of commendable faith. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging And while still others were chained and put in prison, they were stoned, they were sawed in two, put to death by the sword. Isn't that interesting? Earlier it says, verse 34, they escaped the edge of the sword. Now verse 37 says they died by the sword. Another group. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, poor, persecuted, mistreated. There's no prosperity gospel there. I tell you, says the writer, whoever this person is, the world's not worthy of these people. These are heroes of the faith. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes and in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Wait a minute, you say. Did it not say earlier in verse 33 that they gained what is promised? And now here it says none of them gained what was promised. That sounds like a contradiction in the Bible until you began to study it more deeply. That phrase in verse 39 could simply refer to the nameless others that we just cataloged whose life ended without faith being realized. But we can't look only at them. Look at verse thirteen of chapter eleven. All these people were still living by faith when they died, and they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them from a distance and welcomed them from afar off. Wow! So some received and gained, and some didn't. When Israel went into the promised land, it was said in the book of Joshua, now all of the good promises of God to the house of Israel have been fulfilled. None of his promises have failed. And we read in the book of Hebrews, many died without the promises being fulfilled. I've got another answer for you that's beyond just somehow dividing up these heroes between the heroes and the heartbreaks. And it's this, the final promise is in the fulfillment of a coming Savior who hadn't come in the time of the Old Testament prophets and judges and kings. That's why we read in verse 40, the very last verse of the chapter, and God had planned something better for us. What's better? The whole book of Hebrews says, Christ is better. The new covenant is better. All the promises that he fulfills, they're better. God's promised something better for us so that only together with us could these Old Testament saints be made perfect. In other words, all of the promises couldn't be fulfilled because Christ hadn't come. So they were looking ahead and welcoming the promises afar off, knowing a savior would come, knowing Messiah would appear, and they died receiving some of the promises, but not all of the promises. And that, my friend, is our life in a nutshell. Now, to be honest, you and I live after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So our faith, I mean, if they had vital faith in the days they lived, should not our faith even be more energized? It was John Calvin who said, if a tiny spark of light led them to heaven, but now the sun of righteousness shines on us, what excuse shall we offer if we cling to this sad earth? We need to set our affections on things above. We need to grab by faith what we cannot see and embrace the promises of God, and do great exploits with a rational faith that is totally committed to God, whether we realize all of the promises in our lifetime or not. Because he who calls us is faithful, and he will fulfill every promise. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. All the promises of God in Jesus Christ are Yea, and amen. They are yes and absolutely to be filled, fulfilled to the glory of almighty God. So we come to the end of chapter 11 and we look at what their faith was commended for. And we have to realize that in our own experience, We're going to have times of discouragement. We're going to pray and not not all our prayers will be answered as we are hoping. We're going to see God bless, but at other times we're going to be tried, maybe persecuted, maybe imprisoned, maybe cut off. Some save from the edge of the sword, some die by the edge of the sword. They're both heroes of the faith. So the question is, how can I have that kind of commendable faith. And that's where we go into chapter 12. Remember, there are no chapter divisions in the original documents. In fact, there's no periods and divisions of of sentences. Those who are translating the scripture have to go through the grueling process of determining where a sentence ends. And sometimes the original documents the the scrolls were written all capital letters and you didn't even have smaller letters to understand where a sentence would begin. So this is the flow from chapter 11. Now see if this makes any sense after weeks of studying chapter 11. Therefore, what does that mean? Sit up, take notice, here's my conclusion. (laughs) Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I ask you the question, who are the witnesses? What group could we call this great cloud of witnesses who've gone before us? Anybody? Anybody? Chapter 11, now how in the world can we come up with this brainiac idea that these witnesses are people in heaven looking over heaven and watching us run the race to see how where we're doing and they're seeing our failures and they're seeing our encouraged, they're seeing our successes and they're encouraging us to go on. There's uh, one paraphrase, I think it's called uh, the Moffat paraphrase, maybe it's the William translation, who actually took an obscure interpretation from the original and got the idea that the saints are in the grandstands in heaven looking over the grandstands and watching us run the race, waiting for us to finish, applauding us when we do well and booing us when we do poorly. I don't want that. That's kind of eerie. No, those aren't the witnesses. The witnesses are those who've gone before and have given us great examples of what it is to live by faith. Now, I can't tell you whether people who have died and gone to heaven can see us. I can't tell you that, but I can tell you this. God has given us so many good examples that faith pays off in the end. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith pays off. And the witnesses are before us, and so we need to run. Now in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, did you notice three times you have the phrase, let us, let us, let us? This is an exhortation to the crowd of believers. And the first let us is, let us remove. Let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. Now the metaphor is someone running a race. And when you watch the Olympics, you'll notice that before a race, they're wearing a lot. They've got their sweats on, sometimes a towel around the neck, sometimes a towel over the head. Well, you may not realize that some of them have been in saunas to loosen up their muscles as much as they can. They try to keep the heat in. But when they run the race, they take all that off. In fact, nowadays, they're taking more and more off. Of course, in the Olympic days, they ran naked, so at least it's not that bad. But the idea is when you're in a race and you want to win, you want nothing to encumber you. When they train, they put weights on their ankles to make their legs stronger. No one puts those weights on their legs when they're running the race. Take whatever hinders you off. By the way, these are good things. Did you know that there are some good things in your life that are hindering you from running your race? They're righteous things. At least noble. At least not sinful. (laughs) And you say, what's so bad about it? And the question really should be, what's so good about it? And I know people who are involved in good things to the place where they have no time for God. And they call themselves followers of Jesus. I'm not saying you shouldn't enjoy good things. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, those who are rich, I want you to enjoy what God has given to you and to be rich in good works." Not only do we remove the good things that hinder us, but we remove the sin that entangles us. Now, that's a no brainer. Did you know that sin is tripping you up in your race, slowing you down? Get rid of it. What is the sin that easily trips you up? Attack it, put it to death, eliminate it. Notice the second let us. Let us run. Let us run with patient endurance. The Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. We are to run with patient endurance the race that is marked out for us. If you're involved in a marathon race, the course is clearly marked out and you can't win unless you stay on the course each one of us has a course marked out for us. Paul said when he was dying, he said, I have finished my race. And he described it in Acts chapter 20 as the race the Lord has given to me. God has given to each one of you a race. You're not to run your neighbor's race. You're not to run your spouse's race. You're to run your race. And you're to run it with patient endurance. If the first is preparation to run the race, then the second is participation in the race. Get in the race. Get in the race. Some of you are spectators with this thing called faith, and you've been called to be servants of God. Get involved. Let your faith be active. That's what the witnesses tell us. It pays off. Run the race. How do I do it? Verse 2. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Let us look to Jesus. This is the point of concentration. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. A very interesting word. It's actually a participle, and it has the idea of looking away from something and looking intently to something else. It's the idea of looking away from the immediate surroundings, and fixating on Jesus. It's an obsessive attraction to Jesus Christ. Now that word obsessive we use almost always in a pejorative sense. But I'm telling you, you and I need to be obsessed with Jesus Christ. And most of us are far from it. Obsessed with Christ, completely engrossed with him. He is our focus. He's the concentration of our life. And by the way, Jesus is described as the author and the perfecter of our faith. That word author is a very interesting word. It's where we get the English word architect. Archagos is the word. Architect is the English. Jesus is the one who designs the race you are to run. He is the founder. He is the one who designs faith. He starts you going. And he brings you to the finish line. He is the author. And he is the perfecter of our faith. We mentioned a moment ago that those who were commended for their faith had a faith that was unfinished, either in receiving the promises given to them or even in their own personal growth and experience. They were not perfect. And you and I are not perfect in our faith. That's why we have to grow in faith. If you jump back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, you'll see that Jesus suffered As the author of our salvation, he became perfect through sufferings. So the writer of Hebrews grabs up that same idea that he mentioned in chapter 2 and brings it back to us in chapter 12. Jesus is the author of our salvation, and he was perfected. That doesn't mean that there was something deficient in his faith. It means, in his sense, it was proven and declared to be perfect, tested, and found perfect. But you and I have a faith that needs to be improved. By the way, look at chapter 11 for a moment, verse 27. All of this happened to Moses. He's a great illustration of this. By faith, Moses, growing up in Egypt, refused to become called the sons of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God, then to enjoy all the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for Christ as greater treasures than all Egypt could offer. So verse 27 says, by faith he left Egypt. Let us remove. Not fearing the king's anger, and he persevered. That's running the race with patient endurance. And how did he do it? He saw him who is invisible. Let me say to you, my dear friends, the best thing you can do every day of your life is to see Jesus Christ. You say, I can't see him literally. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. You have to see him, the one who is invisible. It says we need to look to him look to him for salvation, look to him for sanctification, look to him for his second coming. Look to him for strength. See Jesus. That's why you have devotions. Not just to learn more of the Bible, not just to pray, not just to check off a list that I'm reading through the Bible and I've done today's requirement. No, I'm reading my Bible every day to see Jesus. I want to see him. I love the phrase from Robert Murray McShane who said, one look to self, ten looks to self to Christ, that's the ratio. You and I are looking to ourselves, oh woe is me, I don't have strength, oh I have just sinned, I'm so inadequate, we're looking to ourselves, we're all caught up with ourselves. McShane said one look to self, yeah you have to see yourself but immediately 10 looks to Christ. And that's the only way you can get through the race. By the way when you're running the race you're never gonna finish and never gonna win if you're always looking at the person you're running with. Am I ahead of them? No. You win by looking at the prize. And that's what it says. Consider him, verse three. By the way, the same word that we saw in verse 19, the whole idea of logic and reason. Evaluate, analyze, consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinful people so that you don't grow weary and give up. I like the way it's put in the message by Eugene Peterson. He said, when you find yourself flagging in your faith, go over that old story again and again, item by item, that long litany of hostility that Jesus plowed through. That will shoot adrenaline into your soul. That's a great paraphrase. The way you run your ways is to look to Jesus. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. What's the chorus? Sing it with me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And all God's people said, you are dismissed.